You're listening to Pastor Ryan Couch as he teaches through the book of 2 Samuel. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn there now. We are going through the book of 2 Samuel here on Wednesday nights. And if you're unfamiliar, 2 Samuel is really the life of David. King David is probably the most famous king in all of Israel, one of the most famous people in, in the Bible. When you, when you hear his name, you, you automatically think of a few things. And, and maybe one of the things that you think of is the story that we're going to look at tonight, the story of David and Bathsheba, the story that, that really brings David home to us in a lot of ways. Because we really can't relate to all of David's victories. I mean, even when you read the Psalms, it's like, man, this guy was an amazing writer. He had an amazing heart for God. When we see David in the cave of Adullam writing Psalm 34 and saying, I will bless the Lord at all times, even though Saul was chasing him down, wanting to kill him. I don't relate real well with that. But when I read the story of David and Bathsheba, even though I've never done what David did, I relate to that because it brings David down to a level of humanity. And I think we always like to see our celebrities and our famous people fall because it makes us relate to them. Even though that's sinful in a, in a sense, it, it's ugly, it's, it's so fleshly to to want people to fail but in a sense we we like that we like our heroes to fail and certainly David had great failure in fact what we see here in, in this text is that the most godly people do the most ungodly things and when that happens when, when famous Christians fall immediately people who don't like God who are opposed to Jesus who hate the church, immediately they will rise up and they will say, see, you're all just a bunch of hypocrites. Or even you, if, if you're known as a Christian in your workplace or in your family and, and you say something or you do something that is opposed to Christianity, which we all do, it's just a matter of how public it is, right? When you do that, immediately, right? The coworker, the family member, the neighbor, you, you Christians are just hypocrites, and the thing about it is, is that the only hypocrisy is if you deny that you did wrong or if you try to hide it. Because the fact of the matter is, we're all humans. And so to sin is not hypocrisy, it's simply identifying with the wrong nature. See, because as Christians, in a sense, we're living in a duplicitous nature. On the one hand... We have our sin nature that, that, yes, has been crucified with Christ, but is still very powerful in your life. And on the other hand, you have the new man, the, the spirit, which has been made alive by Christ. And they're at war with each other. Galatians chapter 5 tells us that the flesh and the spirit that reign in you simultaneously if you're a Christian. It's the great civil war within. Galatians 5 says that they are at war with one another. And it's a matter of who with what you're going to identify with on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis. Who are you going to identify with? Your old man, your old woman, because it wants to rule you, right? I mean, the moment you wake up, it, it, it wants to rule you. If, if you're trying to watch what you eat, if you're trying to master 
your appetite. What, what is your flesh wanting? It's telling you to, to eat that food you know you shouldn't eat. And, and you want it. You can taste it. And rather than water, you want a soda. You know, Rather than that gravel-like cereal, you, you want my favorite, Cocoa Pebbles. I mean, who doesn't like Cocoa Pebbles, right? It says it has all the essential vitamins and nutrients. It says it right. They can't lie. It, those appetites are calling out for you. And of course, it goes way beyond eating. It gets much more insidious than that. And that's what we see with David. And chapter 10 really serves as the backdrop to the story of David and Bathsheba. So we'll look at that very quickly, and then we'll get into chapter 11 where we'll see this famous story. It says, It happened after this, after David's kindness to Mephibosheth that we saw last week, It happened after this that the king of the people of Ammon, the Ammonites, died. And Hanun, his son, reigned in his place. Then David said, I will show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, as his father showed kindness to me. And so David, continuing to extend this hased, this covenantal love of God that he showed to Mephibosheth, he's now showing it even to the enemy nations, the Ammonites. So David sent by the hand of his servants to comfort him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the people of Ammon. And the princes of the people of Ammon said to Hanun their lord, Do you think that David really honors your father because he has sent comforters to you? Has David not rather sent his servants to you to search the city, to spy it out and to overthrow it? Therefore Hanun took David's servants, shaved off their beards, cut their garments in the middle at their buttocks and sent them away. So this was the most humiliating thing you could do. The the beard was a a status symbol in Israel. To shave off half the beard was basically just to humiliate, just to publicly make them look foolish. And then they cut their garments, their robes, right where their butt would be sticking out as they ran back home. So this is just complete humiliation. Here David is extending love, he's extending kindness, and this is how his men are treated. When they told David, he sent to meet them, because the men were greatly ashamed, for good reason. And the king said, wait at Jericho until your beards have grown, and then return. And and so this was so important that they wouldn't even want to be in public looking like this. And so David says, look, stay there, let your beards grow back. When the people of Ammon saw that they had made themselves repulsive to David, the people of Ammon sent and hired the Syrians of Beth Rahab and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers, and from the king of Makkah, 1,000 men, and from Ishtab, 12,000 men. And so these Ammonites begin to hire outside forces to help them because they're paranoid now. Now when David heard of it, He sent Joab and all the army of the mighty men. Then the people of Ammon came out and put themselves in battle array at the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah, Beth Rehob, Ishtab, and Makkah were by themselves in the field. When Joab saw that the battle line was against him before and behind, he chose some of Israel's best and put them in battle array against the Syrians. And the rest of the people he put under the command of Abishai, his brother, that he might set them in battle array against the people of Ammon. Then he said, If the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the people of Ammon are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage, 
And let us be strong for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Joab did a lot of stupid things. Joab said a lot of stupid things. But this is a place where Joab gets it right. May the Lord do what is good in his sight. And that ought to be the model for our life. That ought to be all that we want for our lives. That the Lord does what is good in my life, in your life, in his sight. Whatever you want, Lord. Just like Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. Whatever you want to do. Whatever's good in your sight, God. I'm not coming here with my agenda and my plans, hoping that you'll get behind it. How often do we do that? Lord, here's the things that I want to see you do. Here's the man that I want. Certainly you want him for me, so bless it. Here's the woman, Lord. She's perfect for me. Certainly that's what you would have, so bless it. God, here's, here's this thing that I, that I so want, that I want to purchase. And, and we, we come to God with our plan, with our agenda, and, and we want God to bless it. Rather than saying, whatever's good in your sight, Lord. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near for the battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. When the people of Ammon saw that the Syrians were fleeing, they also fled before Abishai and entered the city. So Joab returned from the people of Ammon and went to Jerusalem. When the Syrians saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered together. Then Hadadezer sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the river, and they came to Helam. And Shobach, the commander of Hadadezer's army, went before them. When it was told David, he gathered all Israel, crossed over the Jordan, and came to Halam. And the Syrians set themselves in battle ray against David and fought him. Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians and struck Shobach, the commander of their army, who died there. And when all the kings who were servants to Hadadezer saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. And so this great victory over the Ammonites and the Syrians is the backdrop to this story of David and Bathsheba. David and his men, the Israelites, have just come out of great victory. And you guys, it's in times of victory, it's in times when, when things are going well for you, that you are most susceptible to the enemy. Because it's in those times where you tend to just sort of kick back. You, you tend to be unguarded. In fact, it's been said that an unguarded strength is a double weakness. An unguarded strength, something that you think you have down pat. This is something that I've got it mastered. And David thought that everything was going really well. The problem was is that it, it was going really well corporately, collectively. Things were going amazing. But personally, David's heart was beginning to become further and further from God. And so don't ever fool yourself, especially those of you who are involved in, in ministry here at the church. Many of you are, and you can begin to identify with how well the church is doing collectively and corporately. And say, man, the church is doing great. People are coming to Christ. People are growing. Ministry is happening. And you can begin to sort of identify 
and relate with that and forget about your own heart and what God is wanting to do in you personally. And you begin to be separated from him. And that's what happens with David. It said it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Reba. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now David gets blamed here often for being lazy, for staying back and sending his men. And I, I read three or four commentaries where that's the first point, David's laziness. There's nowhere in the text that indicates that at all. In fact, David was just in battle with the Syrians and the Ammonites in the previous chapter. There's nothing to indicate that David isn't willing to go to war. It had already been won. The battle had already been taken care of. David was certainly a part of that. And so let's not read things into the text. Let's not try to get creative and say that David was resting when he should have been battling. And that's why he ended up in the sack with Bathsheba. No, the reason why David ended up with Bathsheba in bed is because he was a sinful man that was a lust hound. That's why. Not because he should have been out battling. David remained at Jerusalem. Then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. And so you can imagine the Middle Eastern home where the roof is flat and it looks out upon the city, this palace of the king. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing. Now, we, we tend to figure that she's naked here, that she's out bathing out on her porch or something. And I, I don't think that's true. I don't think that any sensible woman is going to be bathing naked out in front of everybody else. I think actually what this is is that she's being cleansed from her impurity because we're going to see that she was just coming off of her menstrual cycle, which in that culture, in, in the Jewish culture, that made you impure, that made you unclean, and you had to be cleansed from that. And it was a process. And so she's probably cleansing from this. And it says, the woman was very beautiful to behold. Now, there's Hebrew words that speak of beauty. We saw one used for Abigail in 1 Samuel. And it, that spoke of, of just a, a beauty about Abigail. But this, this speaks of physical beauty solely. And it speaks of the fact that she was extremely attractive, noticeably attractive. So Bathsheba, whatever she's doing, maybe she's naked, maybe she's, she's out there just taking a shower out for, with everybody watching her, find it hard to believe, but possibly. Maybe she's just cleansing herself from her impurity. You decide which one you like better. Whatever it is, she's hot. David likes what he sees. So David sent and inquired about the woman. Basically, he's checking into her. Who is this? And someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him. Now, again, I think when we read this story and we think about this story, we picture David sending a couple guys over there knocking on the door, saying, Hey, the king wants to sleep with you. I highly doubt that's what happened. I think it went more like this. Hey, uh, the king wants to talk to you about your husband. He's out to war. He wants to see how he's doing. If you've heard from him, he'd like just to give you his regards. David had this plotted out. And that's 
where sin begins is, is in the mind, plotting it, planning it. It, it first was a, a look. It, it first was noticing this beautiful woman. Now, you can't blame David for that. There's no sin in that. You can't help but notice if a woman or a man or if any sin for that matter is alluring or attractive. You can't help that. What you have to do, though, is defeat that at that moment in your mind. You can't dwell on it. And David begins to dwell on this sin. It started with a glance. It started with noticing her. No harm in that. But then he began to think about it. He began to think about the fact, you know what? I'm the king. I can have any woman I want. Why can't I have her? And so he sends his men. Oh, we're just going to inquire. We're just going to talk to her. We're just going to see who she is and bring her over. And I'll just have a conversation with her. Not a big deal. And she came to him. And what started with a glance and began to formulate in his mind and become real in a plan now becomes absolute sin. As he lays with her, it says. King James, Old Testament way of saying that David and Bathsheba slept together. They committed adultery because she was cleansed from her impurity. And see that would indicate to me what it was that she was bathing from. And she returned to her house. And so they sleep together. She goes back home. And the woman conceived. And so under the providence of God, it just so happened that she was in that time of the month where she was ovulating. And and you women know, and a lot of you guys know, that there's only a couple days a month that a woman can even get pregnant. And so it just happened. It just so happened that... At this time that David wants her, they sleep together, she gets pregnant. She conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. That's the news that David didn't want to hear. His sin is beginning to snowball. And see, that's exactly what happens. Is that sin, you guys, it, it begins to, to grow legs. It, it begins to, to send out tentacles. It, it, it begins to take a grip on your life. And, and this sin that David commits, it, it's not just going to affect him, which it does deeply. As we're going to look at next week, as we explore some of the Psalms and writings of David, it affected him deeply because it broke fellowship with God. But it not only affected him, but it affected his whole family. And it affected Bathsheba and her family. And it's going to affect Uriah big time. See, your sin will always take you further than you wanted to go. See, David just wanted to have a little fling with Bathsheba. He, he was aroused. He liked what he saw. And he wanted that. What's the big deal? I'm the king. He, he was identifying with his power and his position. Things were going well. And yet he didn't see that he was being distanced from God. And what started in the mind ended up in the bed, but it didn't stay there and it never does. See, and we have to count the cost. We have to count the cost of what we're doing, the choices that we're making. And that's really the difference between reasonable people and people that just do whatever feels good for the moment. It's, it's not thinking ahead. It's not thinking of the repercussions and the implications. And you guys, we need to ask God for for that kind of insight, for that kind of wisdom. If David could have looked ahead and saw all that would happen, it never would have been worth it. But at the moment, it seemed like it was. It so seemed like the right thing to do. 
Because your flesh just takes over. I'm with child. The sin is beginning to have its effect. And know this, that your sin will always take you further than you want to go. When godly people do the most ungodly things, it never simply affects just them. It will never simply just affect you. And know that. You might be the most on-fire Christian. You may be in the Word every day. You may be soaking up Bible studies, coming to church regularly, worshiping God, but you have the proclivity to be in the exact same position as David. David was a man after God's own heart. David would never do this. Oh, yes, he would. And so will you if you allow yourself to be in that position in that situation it's a minute by minute denial of the flesh identifying with the spirit not the flesh then david sent to joab the commander of his army saying send me uriah the hittite and so more plotting and more planning because this sin has now begun to snowball and now bathsheba has a baby and it's going to be very clear that it's not Uriah's because he's out on the battlefield. And half of David's household knows that he brought Bathsheba there. They know something's up. He can't hide it. This is going to be obvious. So he's got to act. And when you sin and you don't want to deal with it with God, then you got to hide it. And you got to lie about it. And you got to cover it up. See, and that's where hypocrisy comes in. People say, oh, Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And like I said earlier, the sin is not hypocrisy. That's just identifying with the wrong nature. Where the hypocrisy comes in is when you begin to hide it and act like everything is okay. And maybe some of you are in that place where you're plotting and you're planning, how am I going to hide this? How am I going to keep this from others? Know this, you can't keep it from God. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us everything is naked and open to Him. And you know that. You know that. You, you know that your life, your soul is bare naked to God. You can't hide a thing from Him. But you're thinking, I can, I can hide it from people as long as people don't know. And see, that's what David was thinking. I don't want to ruin my reputation. I don't want to undermine my authority. I'm the king. Adultery in this culture was punishable by death. Certainly the king can't sentence himself to death. I've got to hide this. I've got to put this away. How can I? Well, abortion wasn't an alternative at this time. So David is thinking. He's plotting. He's planning. What am I going to do? Send Uriah, send her husband to me. This goes now from lust, from David's lust to David's deceit. Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. Just shooting the breeze. Not going to mention that, hey, I just slept with your wife last night. How's the war going? How are you guys doing out there? How's Joab, my man, doing? When Uriah had come to him, David said to Uriah, Why don't you go down to your house and wash your feet? Now, that sounds funny to us. Basically, what it means is, why don't you go down, hang out at home, get cleaned up, spend a little time resting and relaxing. You deserve it, Uriah. Take some time off. David, in his mind, thinking that Uriah would take advantage of this opportunity, he would sleep with his wife, and everything would be perfect. No one would think anything of it. They would assume this is Uriah's child. Till he looks nothing like him. I, maybe he hadn't thought that through yet, but you know, hey, whatever. Maybe they looked alike. 
This, this is going to be good. I, I can cover over my sin and we'll be done with this. And that's what we think. We think, I'll just do a little deceit, a little cover-up, a little bit of lying here. And, and I'll save myself from having to come clean. The problem is, is that God sees everything. So you still have that issue to deal with. David hasn't dealt with God. The other problem is, is that our sin has a way of finding us out. And this sin is going to find David out. Because Uriah is an honorable man. And he won't comply with David's plans. Possibly, again, under the providence of God. David tells him, he gives him permission to go home and to enjoy himself and to enjoy his wife. So Uriah departed from the king's house and a gift of food from the king followed him. And certainly it would have included some strong drink as well. Uriah, go home, kick back, get drunk, sleep with your wife, cover up my sin, please. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Uriah was too honorable of a man. He, he didn't comply with David's plan. So when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? What's up, bro? Well, why didn't you take advantage of this? And Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So Uriah says, look, the guys are out fighting. They're sleeping out in the field. They're risking their lives. They're all away from their families. It wouldn't be right for me to go and to enjoy the comforts of home when my men are out at war. I won't do it. And so you can just picture David in his mind thinking, dang it, why? Why won't you do this? This is so simple. Then David said to Uriah, wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now when David called him, he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. David thought, one last effort. I'm going to get this guy good and drunk. Certainly he'll stumble home. Even if he doesn't sleep with his wife, people won't know the difference, but he won't do it. Even in his drunken stupor, he didn't do it. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And so David's sin continues. The snowball is getting bigger. The tentacles are being sent out further. It started with a look. Man, she's hot. I want her. I'm the king. Why shouldn't I have her? Planning, plotting. She gets pregnant. Okay, just cover this up. Deceit. Uriah won't comply with his plans. And so now it goes from lust to deceit to murder. It's the only alternative. How else is he going to continue to cover it up? Unless he comes clean, unless he repents, unless he confesses, this is the only alternative. Because sin just gets bigger. The snowball is now out of control. David writes a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote in the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the fiercest battle, the hottest battle. And retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Now the ironic thing is that poor Uriah has got this letter in his hand. Of course he's not going to betray his king. He's not going to read the letter. But how gutsy of David to send this letter to Joab to kill Uriah by 
Uriah himself. David has absolutely lost his mind. This is the man after God's own heart. This is the guy in the previous section that we looked at last week in chapter 9 who blessed Mephibosheth, the guy that we said the true test of a person's character is how he treats those that can offer him nothing in return. And now he's going to murder Uriah after he impregnates his wife. And that's because the most godly people can do the most godly things, ungodly things, when they're not in right relationship with Jesus. And it applies to every one of us. I cringe when I hear Christians say, I would never do that. Don't say that. You don't know what you're capable of. You are capable of the most hideous, insidious, nasty, dark sins. Your flesh, when given opportunity. You think of the weird sex addicts. You think of the weird people. You think of people that are just absolutely strung out on drugs, destroyed. You think of people that murder serial killers, serial rapists, and you think, I, I could never do that. And, and they all started out f- somewhat innocently. They weren't born that way. They weren't born with a, a pipe with meth shoved into it. They, they, they weren't born with a knife and an agenda to slit somebody's throat. Somewhere along the way, they gave into their flesh a little here, a little there, and that's where they ended up didn't happen all at once. It never does. And it, ne- it won't happen instantly for you either. It didn't happen that way for David. David didn't intend to kill Uriah when he was walking out on the roof that night. He didn't think, you know what? I think I want to get a chick. I want to impregnate her. And I want to kill her husband. He didn't think that. He just thought of the moment. What he wanted right there. But then that sin snowballed, took over. And now he's making the most ridiculous decisions imaginable. Sending the death certificate of a man by his own hand, put him out in the front, have everybody retreat. Now, I don't think David is thinking very clearly because isn't that a little obvious? Aren't the guys going to go, what's up with that? Why did we all run away and leave Uriah standing there? That doesn't seem right. So it was while Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew they were, there were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. Then Joab sent and told David all the things concerning the war, and charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling the matters of the war to the king, if it happens that the king's wrath rises, and he says to you, Why did you approach so near to the city when you fought? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who struck Abimelech? The son of Jerubasheth, was it not a woman who cast a piece of millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Of course, this is a reference to Judges chapter 9, where Jerubbabel, the son of Gideon who went nuts, was killed by this woman because he was too close to the wall. She threw a millstone over the wall, hit him on the head and killed him. And so this is all an act that David's going to put on acting like he's angry that they made this mistake in war. Why would you get so close to the wall? Don't you remember Judges chapter 9? Don't you remember what happened there? When he says this, then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And so that's the main message that David needs to hear. To know the deed is done. To know that Joab did his job. 
So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent by him. And the messenger said to David, Surely the men prevailed against us and came out to us in the field. Then we drove them back as far as the entrance of the gate. The archers shot from the wall at your servants, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now notice, David intended to only kill Uriah, but in the process, other men were killed as well. Your sin never affects just you. In fact, it it affected Bathsheba. It affected the child in the womb of Bathsheba. It affected Uriah, and now it affects these other men who wouldn't have been in harm's way if it wasn't for this. Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you. Don't let it be evil in your sight. Don't feel bad, Joab. I, I know you're going to probably feel guilty about this. Shake it off, bro. It's not that big of a deal. It's okay. You, you've got my permission. This is a completely inflated view that David has of himself. That he can actually assuage the guilt of another. Hey, it's no big deal, Joab. Just let it go. No, it is a big deal. It's a really big deal. Because now your sin has infected a whole bunch of people, including Joab, who's now implicated in this sin as well. He's part of it. He's guilty before God because he's covering up for his king. On one hand, Joab is loyal and and he's trying to do right by his friend, his mentor, his king. But on the other hand, he's completely opposed to God. Do not let this thing displease you, Joab, for the sword devours one as well as another. Hey, it's just part of war. People die. No worries. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it. So encourage him. Go back and tell Joab that. Encourage him with that. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for her husband. You got to remember that there's a lot more to this story than the author says here. We kind of tend to think that Bathsheba got blessed. I mean, she went from mediocre living to living in the palace. I mean, she, she scored. It's not true. She was a victim in this, although certainly she was guilty herself. The reality of it is, is that David used his power his position, his influence to bring this woman into his bed to impregnate her. And the reality is she was a victim. She loved her husband. There's nothing to indicate that she didn't. It's also not like she was poor. She's living in the high rent district. I mean, David could see her house from his. It's not like she's broke. Her husband was one of David's mighty men. He was a a tough dude. He was well-known. He was well-respected. He was a soldier. And David stripped that from her because of his lust. She mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. Notice the last sentence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. David told Joab, don't let this thing displease you. Don't let this be evil in your sight, Joab. It's no worry. Shake it off. But God said to David, hey, David, yeah, you can say whatever you want. You can try to cover this up however you'd like to. You can tell people not to worry about it. But hey, I'm worried about it. This thing displeases me. And that's all that matters. You can cover this up all day long, my friend. But it is going to come out. David would hide this for a year. David would write about this later. How it consumed him. It ate him alive but not enough to actually do something about it. 
And guilt, you guys, is just guilt. It's a natural part of being a human. God has created you with this sense of right and wrong. It's part of Imago Dei. It's part of being created in the image of God. But that guilt, that understanding of right and wrong, and then when you do wrong and when you're opposed to God and you feel guilty about it, it's only so, it's only as good as what you do with that guilt. If you ignore it, if you compartmentalize it, if you push it back and push it back and never deal with it, then your guilt is worthless. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. That remorse that's not godly. It's just a guilt. But unless it leads you to repentance, it's worthless. And maybe you've been under the, the weight of guilt and shame, but it hasn't brought you to repentance. You haven't changed. You're continuing to do it. You're hiding it. But yeah, you feel guilty. Yeah, you, you know you shouldn't. You understand that it's wrong. And, and for some of you, you think that's enough. You understand that it's wrong. You feel guilty about it. You're beating yourself up about it. And you think that's enough. That's enough punishment. Know this. That isn't enough. The Bible says to bear fruits that are worthy of repentance. Repentance is not feeling guilty. Repentance is changing your behavior, changing your direction, changing your lifestyle. And it's not just about sex. Clearly this is about sex, this story, and then it begins to be about deceit and lying and murder as well. It's interesting that that Jesus would use those two illustrations when talking about sin in, in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says that we're all guilty before God because we've all committed adultery. If you've lusted in your mind, you've committed adultery. We're all guilty of murder, Jesus said, because if you have anger in your heart, you're a murderer. So we're all implicated. We're all guilty. But clearly there's a lot more that you can manifest your sin nature with. David chose lust. And for many men, that's a, that's a struggle. That's a huge issue. I wouldn't say many. I would say all, unless you're like dead, more than likely. I mean, the, the thing that's really discouraging is when you meet like 90-year-old guys and, and they're still struggling with it. They're running around the convalescent home, popping Viagra. You know, it's like, whoa, this is not good. <laughs> this never goes away. I mean, seriously. But maybe that is your issue. Maybe it's something else. You know what it is. It really doesn't matter. This is just a, a template for you to say, insert sin here. Fast forward. This is the destruction it's going to cause in your life if you don't deal with it. What are you going to do? Continue in it or repent? The beauty of all of this is that Jesus was tempted in every way that we've been tempted. Which kind of blows my mind when I think about it. That means Jesus was tempted with lust. That means Jesus was tempted with everything that I'm tempted with. And yet he didn't sin. He had victory over all of it. So that he could go to the cross and shed his blood. Pure, perfect Holy blood that would cleanse your sin so that when he said from the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. It meant something. So when Jesus said, it is finished, the work of salvation is complete. When he said that, it means something. It's not empty because he didn't have crazy sin that he was hiding. He didn't have to repent of anything. He was perfect and he shed his blood for you, shed his blood for David. David looked forward to the cross. David's going to write about it in Psalm 32, and Psalm 51. He's going to write about the cross 
and how that God isn't interested in all the sacrifices of animals, that God is interested in a contrite heart, a broken heart, so that God can give you a new heart. David had insight into God, insight into salvation that many Christians don't even have, this side of the cross. And there again, that's why the theme of this is that godly people can do the most ungodly things. David never lost his relationship with God. David never lost his heart for God in the midst of all of this. Seriously? Never lost that passion for God. Maybe you're fooling yourself, thinking that it's all okay because you still love Jesus, you still worship Him, you still raise your hands to Him, you still have emotionally involved times of fellowship with God, and you think you're okay. The fact of the matter is, you guys, is that David never lost his relationship, but he was in deep, utter sin. So quit fooling yourself. Deal with it. Get right with God. That's what he wants. He wants you to come clean before him. He wants you to bear your heart, to confess your sin. And he'll forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He'll give you a new heart. The Bible says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's what I want. That's what I want. I want a new heart. And then I want to identify with that new heart rather than with my flesh. But if you've been identifying with the flesh, if you've been losing the battle with your flesh, and you've been given into sin, then deal with it tonight. Get right with God. Come clean before Him. Cry out to Jesus. Don't take a year like David took. Don't put yourself through that agony. Cry out to Him tonight. We're going to give you an opportunity. We're going to close with a couple worship songs. This is the time, you guys. This is the time just to get right with the Lord. To use the example of David, of what not to do. David's going to give us a lot of things to do. But David also shows us what not to do. Conflicted people we are. David, a man after God's own heart, committing the most insane of sins. Godly people can do the most ungodly things when they're out of fellowship with Jesus. It's all of us. Let's stand. Worship the Lord. You've been listening to Pastor Ryan Couch, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County in Prineville, Oregon. For more information on Calvary Chapel of Crook County or to contribute to this ministry, you may do so at our website, www.calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon 97754. Once again, thank you for listening, and God bless.